I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm here with Alan Weil, Executive Director of the National Academy for State Health Policy. Mr. Weil has written a perspective article about the role of the states in defining essential health benefits in the Affordable Care Act. And we're here to talk about the state's roles in health care reform more generally. Mr. Weil, can you briefly explain the concept of essential health benefits and how it fits in the greater framework of the Affordable Care Act? The essential benefits are the benefits that people will receive uh, who are newly covered under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, some will receive those benefits through a plan they purchase in a health insurance exchange. Some will receive those benefits due to an expansion of the Medicaid program. In fact, anyone who buys health insurance in the small group or individual markets after the law goes into effect will have a product that covers the essential health benefits. Large employers uh, are exempt from the essential benefits requirement. In your perspective article, you discuss Secretary Sebelius's recent decision to delegate the task of defining these benefits to the individual states as opposed to the federal government. What options did uh, HHS have in creating this policy, and why do you think they chose the path that they did? Most people expected the federal government to lay out what the definition of the benefits would be. The law says that there are 10 types of services that must be covered. It says that the benefits must be comparable to a typical employer insurance plan. And I think the assumption was that HHS would go through basically line by line and say, this is what inpatient hospital services look like. This is what prescription drugs look like. Um, and that's not at all what they did. What they did was they said uh, each state will determine what the essential benefits will be within that state. Uh, states must draw upon one of 10 different options of existing products that are being sold within that state uh, or the federal employee benefits plan is uh, the source of three of the options. Um, so basically, we're going to have slight variations in what the essential benefits uh, are uh, from state to state, and I, I don't think that's what people were expecting. Um, there are, uh, I, I of course don't know why they chose this path, but I think there are some advantages to it, and so I'm assuming these were in their mind as they uh, made their decision. The primary advantage of this approach is that it's not disruptive of existing insurance markets. So insurance is basically regulated now at the state level. Insurance companies file their products for approval at the state level. And so there are variations around the country uh, in what those products look like. And if you said that on a certain date, all of the products sold in the small group and individual market had to meet a tightly defined federal set of standards, you'd require what might be very small, but still some modifications in those plans uh, all around the country. Hundreds, thousands of, of, uh, of products would have to be modified. By letting uh, the essential health benefits match what's already in existence at the state level, uh, you dramatically reduce the number of changes in insurance products that needs to occur. 
And so I think that's actually the primary rationale for letting states define the product, particularly in the early years. There are some other reasons as well having to do with some of the benefits are not very well defined, and I think we will learn more uh, as we go forward. And one key area uh, that is fairly complex in the law is that individual states over the years have adopted mandates, benefits that must be covered by plans within their state. The way the law is written, anything that a state required insurance companies to cover that went beyond the essential health benefits would actually have a cost to the state government. And so states would have to analyze for mandates such as uh, in vitro fertilization is one example of a mandate in, in a handful of states. If that's not included in the federal essential health benefits, then the state is going to have to pay for a portion of the cost of those benefits. By letting states define their own essential benefits, at least in the early years, states don't have to calculate what the cost is to the state of having these benefits. So there are a lot of operational uh, advantages, just practical advantages, to uh, minimizing the disruption uh, in the health uh, sector. And then uh, you avoid having one big national battle over what these benefits should be, a battle that frankly would not be very pleasant to watch. Looking at other aspects of the law, um, and speaking as you just were of insurance, the states have been given a significant role in setting up insurance exchanges. Can you explain what that has entailed and what happens in the case of states that are not participating in that? Under the law, as of January 1st, 2014, in every state there needs to be a health insurance exchange, which is basically a marketplace of options uh, uh, for plans that people can choose from. And as of January 2014, middle-income families that don't have health insurance through their place of employment are eligible for tax credits that reduce the cost of coverage. So when you purchase through the exchange, you apply your tax credit against the premium cost, and that makes the products affordable uh, when they might not be for a family making forty or $30,000 a year. Uh, the states under the law are uh, given the first option for establishing these, and I think the expectation was that uh, almost all states would decide that this was a function they wanted to perform. What does it mean to set up an exchange? It means you have to develop a governance structure. You have to solicit bids from insurance plans, make some very important decisions about the products that can be offered on the exchange. And then you have to determine people eligible for the tax credits when they come to you and say, I want to buy a product, but I can't really afford it. Is there any subsidy available to me? Those are the basic functions of an insurance exchange. Um, and uh, the way the law is written, if a state does not choose to set up its own exchange, or if uh, as of a year before the implementation of the exchanges, the secretary determines the state is not on a path that will lead them to be able to run an exchange in 2014, then the federal government will run it for the state. And that's what the uh, fallback is for states that either choose not to build an exchange or simply aren't ready. For the individual person, is that distinction between federal and state exchange going to have any impact? Ideally, the consumer wouldn't notice. Most people are going to interact with the exchange either by 
applying for coverage online, as many people do around the country now for various sorts of benefits, or walking into a community-based organization or a, or a, a hospital uh, when they feel like they need services or they need assistance getting insurance. Um, and uh, no matter where you're sitting, uh, I think in theory what you see on the other end of the computer or the telephone line will be the same whether you're in a state exchange or if you're in a federal exchange. But certainly in the early years, there are going to be some important practical differences between state and federal exchanges. The primary one is that uh, we know that low-income families, uh, their income fluctuates a lot. They gain a few hours at work, they work some overtime, or they're seasonal and they lose a job uh, for a period. And um, the tax credits are available to families of middle income, but the lowest income families are going to be eligible for Medicaid. And Medicaid continues to be a state-run program as it has been for the last 40 years. So I think the, the potential disconnect for families interacting with a federal exchange but then a state Medicaid agency has to do with the transitions and the possibility uh, or maybe even the likelihood that states that haven't really built a strong interface between these two programs will find that when people's income changes, they're moved from one system to another that, that look quite different and maybe don't know how to talk to each other very well. I think over the years, uh, we'll work out a lot of these problems, and frankly, over the years, probably states that today are resistant to federal administration, uh, I'm sorry, resistant to building their own exchange and want the federal government to build it, they may decide a few years from now, when they look around the country and they see how other states are doing it, that they want to do it themselves. So I think this is a, a temporary issue of a matter of years. Um, but it, but, uh, but it could be a real one in the short run. The, the only other uh, comment I would make is that some of the more uh, uh, states that are really embracing the law for improving how healthcare is delivered and not just seeing it as a way to get people an insurance card are looking at how they uh, purchase or select their insurance plans in the exchange, and they're looking at how they do that in Medicaid, and they're trying to move more to a quality-based selection process as opposed to just uh, contracting on the basis of price. And in states that have both, uh, the, that are running both the Medicaid program and the exchange, trying to do that is going to be easier because that's a coordinated process. In states where the state runs Medicaid but the federal government runs the exchange, it's very unlikely that data reporting or quality improvement standards are going to be consistent between those two programs. Deciding to establish a state insurance exchange has been widely seen as a tacit endorsement of the Affordable Care Act as a whole, and some states have, have stayed away from it for that reason. Do you think that that politicization has hurt implementation of the act? Uh, absolutely, and I am a little baffled at why carrying out a federal mandate, or in this instance actually uh, choosing to take state-level control over something that if the state doesn't do, the federal government will do. I have a hard time understanding why anyone interprets that as an endorsement of the law. Um, I worked for many years in state government, and 
it's quite common that the federal laws uh, are enacted that aren't exactly what you would do at the state level. But in the American federal system, uh, federal law is supreme, and the states uh, need to comply. Um, and what's challenging is that if you are too resistant, particularly, again, in this law, um, then you're basically setting yourself up to have the federal government do what you don't want to do, and, and you're ceding control that you don't have to cede. So I think the the politics of exactly what you just described, the notion that anything that you do to implement the law is somehow endorsing the law, uh, is a tremendous barrier to states making decisions that are really in their best interest. I'm not saying every state should build its own exchange. I think there are very rational reasons for states to sit down and consider the trade-offs about their own capacity, about their own uh, commitment to doing this, their own resources, and maybe saying, you know, this isn't a business we want to be in. But I'd much rather see states making that decision on the basis of the merits of what's going to be best for the citizens in their state and what they think they can and cannot take on, uh, as opposed to this uh, sort of symbolic uh, issue, which is, uh, if we do it, we are uh, endorsing a law when, in fact, again, in, in many areas of state policy and administration, uh, you, you follow federal mandates and you may be unhappy about it, but uh, no one says, well, because you're complying with federal law, it means you support it. You spoke about people on Medicaid. That brings up one of the most significant aspects of the Affordable Care Act, the expansion of the Medicaid program. Can you talk about what the financial impact of that expansion is going to be for the states? Yeah, let me start by just uh, noting that there's a tremendous amount of attention being paid to building insurance exchanges. They're new. There's federal funding to support states' development of exchanges. There are a lot of questions you have to answer when you're building something new. Um, and the exchanges are a critical component of how the Affordable Care Act will uh, assure that people have access to health insurance that they can afford. But uh, if you look at the numbers, half of the people who are estimated to gain insurance coverage under the Affordable Care Act gain it through the Medicaid program. And there's much less attention being paid to the Medicaid side than there is to the exchange side. And part of that is because Medicaid is an already existing program. And so uh, you don't, you're not starting with some of the fundamental questions that you're starting with in exchanges today. Uh, so we're going to see, as I say, about half of the growth, about 16 million people estimated, uh, to gain coverage through Medicaid, a significant expansion of the program. And basically, the expansion is due to primarily to a federal policy that says that every American with income below 133% of the poverty line, which uh, for poverty line is about $22,000 for a family of four, that everyone with income below 133% of poverty will be eligible for Medicaid. And today, all poor children are eligible for Medicaid, and uh, many poor families, although usually with incomes significantly below that, the states get to set the eligibility thresholds. But... Um, Adults without children, single or married, if they don't have custodial children, other than in a handful of states, are not eligible for Medicaid at all. And under federal law, a state can only cover uh, adults without children 
uh, if they have a waiver. So this is a major change in Medicaid policy. It creates a uniform national floor of eligibility, and it's going to bring millions and millions of primarily adults, uh, very low-income adults, into the program. Um, the uh, Urban Institute gave a five-year estimate of the cost of expanding uh, Medicaid by this much at about uh, $450 billion over those five years. The state share of that is only uh, $20 billion, so it's uh, about uh, 5% of the cost. And the reason that state share is so low is that under the current Medicaid program, the federal and state governments share the cost. But in the Affordable Care Act, the newly enrolled people due to this new federal eligibility standard uh, in the first few years are covered uh, exclusively by the federal government in terms of paying the cost and then phasing down to 90% federal funding uh, as we go into the later years of the law. So the total cost of, of this expansion is significant. Uh, the state's share of the cost is quite small. And just to put it in context, I said $20 billion over five years. Uh, total state tax collection in a typical year is about $700 billion. So uh, 20, that's each year. So this is $20 billion over five years compared to about $700 billion plus of, of state revenue. So it's, uh, it's uh, in relative terms, it's a small amount, uh, but it's still a, a very significant amount of money. And as people surely know, we're, we're coming out of, uh, slowly coming out of an economic downturn that has had a tremendous effect, negative effect on state tax revenues. And so there's significant concern about coming up with the money, even though the state share is quite low. In addition, this expansion of the Medicaid population will surely increase the demand for care. What types of steps can states take to prepare for uh, providing a, an ample health care workforce to meet the growing needs? I think health care workforce is one of the most vexing issues associated with uh, the Affordable Care Act. There's a broad understanding that uh, providing insurance to people who are previously uninsured uh, increases their use of, of health care services. It's exactly what we want. We know people are going without care that they need. And when we give them an insurance card, they, they, uh, they don't quite double their use of health care services, but it does go up uh, just shy of that. Um, and it's not just the Medicaid enrollees who will be newly insured. Many of the people enrolled in the insurance exchange will also be coming from the ranks of the uninsured. Um, we know uh, the early stories out of Massachusetts, which implemented a very similar law, uh, showed significant uh, uh, challenges for people uh, obtaining access, uh, timely access to primary care. Uh, the more recent data indicates that that problem was either short-lived or was perhaps more of a statistical artifact. Uh, so it definitely uh, puts pressure on the healthcare system, but it's probably not uh, insurmountable. And what we should really say here is the problem of limited primary care capacity uh, predates the Affordable Care Act, and it's not that somehow giving people insurance creates this problem, it more highlights the problem. So states have uh, a number of tools at their disposal, and these are politically very challenging tools to use, but uh, 
but we would be kidding ourselves if we said that states don't have some control over uh, the su supply of, of providers in various aspects. Um, states are, are the determinants of the scope of practice laws, and uh, there certainly are state legal barriers to uh, people practicing at the top of their license. Uh, states are also large payers, and they often have payment policies that pay more for people uh, doing the same thing just because they have a higher level of education, and uh, that is not warranted if we don't have evidence that the outcomes are better uh, when the more highly trained people perform those services. Uh, states are often uh, the the uh, the home of of major training institutions, and so the pipeline of of healthcare, of the healthcare workforce, everything from doctors and nurses all the way through uh, other uh, participants in the in the workforce are uh, often trained by institutions that states could exercise significant control over. Although they tend to take a very hands-off approach, I think in the end, and this is a much broader issue than once raised by the Affordable Care Act, but in the uh, end. Uh, we know in this country that we have a lot of inefficiencies in the healthcare delivery system, uh, and it's not just a matter of the number of people in the healthcare workforce, but it's really how we deploy them. Uh, we know that administrative tasks and administrative waste consume a tremendous amount of time, particularly of nurses, but also of physicians. Uh, we know that the way we organize uh, care flows and patient flows does not always maximize the productivity of the healthcare workforce. And um, the broader goals within the Affordable Care Act uh, that I have uh, barely mentioned today, but are really central to the law about integration and coordination uh, and streamlining and simplification. Uh, at the end of the day, it's not just the, the levers of, of supply of, of providers, but it's also how we uh, make working in the healthcare sector uh, more professionally rewarding and reducing some of this waste uh, that, that is potentially a major source of, of capacity that's untapped uh, and, and would be a, a, tr a true win-win in the sense that uh, uh, physicians would rather practice in a less wasteful environment, patients would rather uh, interact with a less, less wasteful healthcare system, and then uh, we would also overcome some of our supply constraints. So uh, there's much work to do here. Uh, states have some of the levers, but certainly uh, the broader health system transformation agenda is, is shared by many, others, uh, many parties other than states. Thank you, Mr. Weil.